0: Hello and welcome to the Two Journeys Podcast. This is Journeys from the Past and my name is Andy Davis. The purpose of this podcast is to inspire listeners to courageous sacrificial actions to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions by learning the stories of our brothers and sisters in the past. So we have been going through an overview of church history. We've been through a number of podcasts now, and we have gotten to the, to the uh, around 500 years of church history. We looked last time at the imperial church after Constantine's conversion, how he brought the power of the Roman Empire together into the Christian church. We looked at the Christological controversies, the battle for orthodoxy, and the uh, fight that Athanasius had to stand firm against Arianism, against the idea that Jesus was a created being, Uh, what we know today as the Jehovah's Witness heresy, but Athanasius stood firm against that. And then we talked about the spread of the gospel with some key leaders. Now, today we're going to talk about the edifice of Christendom. We're gonna talk about soaring ambitions, brilliant colors, and dark shadows. I want to give you that image, that architectural image. Jesus Christ had likened the growth of the kingdom of God to a work of architecture when he told Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Matthew 16, 18. The apostle Paul used a similar metaphor when he spoke of the church as a holy household a structure built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which rises to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit, Ephesians 2. This holy edifice is purely spiritual, built out of what the Apostle Peter calls living stones, people. Those living stones are quarried from Satan's dark kingdom by evangelism and missions, and by the new birth given by the Holy Spirit of God, that's 1 Peter 2.5, the spiritual nature of this rising structure is obvious to all who read these texts. But in the Middle Ages, the vision became cloudy by the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things, Mark 4.19. What should have been essentially spiritual became manifestly physical. What should have been rising toward the highest heavens spiritually became a Christianized version of the soaring Tower of Babel. Perhaps nothing pictures this better than the soaring ambitious cathedrals which still stand as evidence of many of the values of the Middle Ages. Bruce Shelley, the historian who wrote Church History in Plain Language, gives us this powerful analogy, and I'm going to borrow it and use it. I think it's appropriate. The medieval cathedrals were astonishing displays of human ingenuity, determination, and power. But so was the Tower of Babel. For at that time, God himself said, if as one people, speaking one language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they propose to do will be restrained from them. Genesis 11:6. The cathedral at Chartres in France was constructed between 1194 and 1220. And it has two spires, one of which soars to 349 feet and the other to a breathtaking 377 feet. That's the height of a 35-story building. It is built from white limestone. And the revolutionary use of flying buttresses external to the walls of the church enabled the walls to have many large windows which were filled with radiantly colored glass depicting scenes from the Bible to instruct its illiterate parishioners. To walk into the cathedral back then would have been like stepping into another dimension for the peasants of medieval France. Brucelli employed the cathedrals to capture his evaluation of the Middle Ages themselves. Inside the cathedral would be both radiantly colored lights but also deep dark shadows that moved as the sun traveled across the sky. To Brucelli, these represented both the light of the gospel of Christ and the glories of that age, but also the darkness of that age, the darkness that came from the hearts of men. The breathtaking heights represented both the genuine yearning for heaven in the worshipers, but also the soaring worldly ambitions of the men who built them and ruled from them. The constant perils of these towers crashing down and the cracks uh, in the foundations from the ponderous weight represented the obvious structural flaws in this age from the hindsight of history. Historian Kenneth Scott Latourette was much more pessimistic about this age than was Bruce Shelley. He called the first half of this era the darkest hours and the great recession. He contrasted the beautiful and pure faith of the first three centuries of Christians with the corruption of the medieval church. He pointed to the polluting effects of the mass conversions, which led to a watered down uh, church and a watering down of the church's views on purity and discipline. He lifted up the attempts at reform by monasticism, but showed how these efforts eventually led to bizarre and even revolting extremes after the initial purity of their various founders. The destruction of Rome and the influx of the barbarians removed all political stability from the West, to be replaced by a strange amalgamation, a union of church and state that was far from the pure vision of the early church. He cited the devastation wrought by the new religion of Islam, which swept across the Holy Land, across North Africa, which one scholar called the Bible Belt of the Ancient World, swept across North Africa, up into Spain, until finally checked, halted, in France at the Battle of Tours in the year 732. Christianity was receding and corrupted and seemingly losing everywhere. Latourette did acknowledge, however, that the second half of this era showed a renewal of vision and a surge of energy that resulted in the conversion of many peoples in Europe, even into Asia. But he spoke of the Crusades more favorably than I would speaking of expansion through the Crusades. In any case, we'll get to all of those topics. This era will receive its own heavenly review from the perfect mind of God after my faulty review and the faulty reviews of all historians here on earth. But we'll get a heavenly review from the perfect mind of God. And we'll learn there perfectly what God thought of Christendom, what he thought of this stretch of history from around the year 590 up to the Reformation in the beginning of the 16th century, 1517. We'll get to review all that when we get to heaven, and we'll find out what God thought about monasticism and about the dominant papacy, the rise of the rule of the Pope, and Charlemagne's vision of Christendom, the union of church and state, the corrupted vision of the Crusades and scholasticism, the medieval universities and their uh, efforts at theologizing. We're also going to have a chance as we look back at this era at looking at some heroes. And some of those heroes, some have called the morning stars of the Reformation, John Wycliffe and John Huss. We'll get a chance, God willing, to look at all of this. Let's begin our study of this stretch of time by looking at the monastic orders and monasticism. Once the bloody persecutions of the Roman Empire officially came to an end with the conversion of Constantine, then zealous Christians sought a different path by which they could win for themselves a solid assurance of heaven. They found it by living lives of extreme poverty, fasting, prayer, and solitude in the desert. Jerome, the translator of the Latin Vulgate, dub this attempt white martyrdom because they were seeking to die as martyrs without their red blood actually being spilt. One example of this is Antony, who lived in the years 251 through 356. He was a friend of Athanasius who lived in the deserts of Egypt and who battled the world, the flesh, and the devil in personal spiritual warfare like an Olympic athlete. Other desert-dwelling hermits also ventured forth in solitude, seeking their own salvation, following a similar pattern. In the year 320, a former soldier named Pacomius took a major step forward in the history of monasticism by organizing a community of monks with the regimented pattern of common life. They ate, they labored, they worshiped, according to the rules laid out by Pacomius, like they were in a spiritual army. This movement spread throughout the world of the imperial church with key leaders like Basil, Gregory of Nazianzus, and Gregory of Nyssa making key contributions to the understanding of monasticism. By the 4th and 5th centuries, this movement swelled in number, drawing people from all walks of life. They lived out a new spirit of martyrdom, seeking to become like Christ in his death, Philippians 3.10, through asceticism, self-denial, and a common life together. To this end, they gave up their wealth, their hopes for married life, and their personal freedoms. Jerome led monasticism toward an additional vision of scholarship through his lifelong dedication to learning. As we've already seen with the earlier description of the Celtic monks, Zeal for learning and academic excellence was often part of many of these monastic orders. By far the most influential organizer of monastic life in the West came from Benedict of Nursia, who in the year 529 on the towering sides of Monte Cassino near Rome, founded the original Benedictine monastery, establishing a pattern that spread all over Europe. Basic to the commitment was obedience, poverty, and chastity, but Benedict understood the balance necessary for a healthy lifestyle that would actually work for ordinary people who were not as heroically disciplined as Antony had been. He instituted a year-long apprenticeship so that prospective monks could try out the actual life before they took their lifelong vows. He demanded total obedience to the abbot, the head of each monastery, but the abbots themselves were voted in by their fellow monks, and major decisions were made democratically. The daily life in the monastery involved a strict pattern of work, of prayer, of worship, and of study, in addition to reasonable times for rest and eating. Each community was self-sufficient economically. They made their own clothing, They raised their own crops, they bottled their own wine, they built their own buildings. Each monastery was a little world unto itself, and the lifestyle was healthy. It was a balanced one as far as Benedict could understand balance. Other monastic movements would come along later of varying patterns, including the Dominicans, the Augustinians, the Jesuits, etc. These movements all had strengths and weaknesses. For example, though each monk took vows of poverty, the monasteries themselves frequently became very wealthy through the incessant, skillful industry of the monks. The theology tended to become very imbalanced, dualistic, looking at the body as essentially evil. They did not have a healthy view of of the body. And most of these orders began with pure visions of holiness, but were eventually degraded by human sinfulness into ugly excesses that later critics like Erasmus and Martin Luther were able to expose. For our purposes in this podcast, it will be fascinating to see replayed in heaven the history of these various orders and the Lord's evaluation of them. It's easy for us in the comfortable, easygoing, affluent West to zero in on these flaws because they live very different lives than we do. And what would many of those brothers and sisters, for there were female orders as well, say about our worldliness and our wealth? Now let's turn our focus to Gregory the Great and the beginning of the dominant papacy. Part of the problem I have in this study is that I am a convert uh, from Roman Catholicism into Protestantism, and specifically a Baptist in my convictions. Therefore, I have my own biases about all of these individuals and movements. A pure and perfect evaluation of the Roman Catholic papacy over its history, free from all biases, is probably impossible in this world. I have my own biases. To most of the genuinely regenerate people living in the West in the Middle Ages, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, was the unquestioned leader of the church, the vicar of Christ, standing in the spiritual lineage with the Apostle Peter, the rock on which Christ chose to build his church. So in other words, our brothers and sisters who were born and lived and died in those centuries would look on the Pope that way but to Protestants of the 16th and 17th and later centuries, to their spiritual descendants. For them, the Pope was Antichrist, spiritual villain, the enemy of the true gospel. In heaven, all the redeemed will be perfectly one as the Father and the Son are one, according to John 17, 21. We will see everything in history as God does. In order for that level of heavenly unity to be achieved, every last one of us will have to be radically transformed in our minds and hearts and in many of our doctrines. Not one of us will find that our doctrine was perfect in all respects, needing no heavenly correction. Now, Bruce Shelley in his Church History in Plain Language lists 247 popes from Leo I, to the present one, Francis, elected in the year 2013. Leo I served as pope from the years 440 through 461. Shelley adds that the Roman Catholic Church lists 48 popes before Leo I. How many of those men will actually be in heaven? Who can say? At that time, the old joke, is the pope Catholic? Will have disappeared. All that will matter for each of those men on Judgment Day will be, was this pope Christian? Was this pope a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, regenerate, born again by the power of the Holy Spirit? That's all that will matter on that day. In the year 1514, the Dutch humanist Erasmus wrote, incognito, anonymous, typical of his slippery style, he wrote a mocking piece entitled Julius Excluded from Heaven. Julius was a pope, Pope Julius II, who had just died. He was depicted in this this writing as seeking entrance into heaven by persuading Peter to allow him in, using the same techniques of power that he employed on earth. Julius had been known as the warrior pope, who literally led armies into battle in shining golden armor. In this dialogue, Julius is drunk and tries to buy his way in with a secret money chest that he has access to. When Peter refuses him entrance, Julius threatens Peter with excommunication. This is how part of the account goes. Julius II, If you don't hurry up and open the gates, I'll unleash my thunderbolt of excommunication with which I used to terrify great kings on earth and their kingdoms too. You see, I've already got a bull prepared for the occasion. Peter answers, Just tell me, please, What you mean by all this bombast about bulls, bolts of thunder, and maledictions? I never heard from Christ a single one of these words. So that's Erasmus secretly writing against Pope Julius II as he tries to get into heaven with Peter there standing at the gates. Julius, in that mocking account, also defends his long list of sins, including simony, which is the buying off of church offices by the paying of money and pederasty, sexual immorality, saying that his papal authority allows him to forgive anyone's sins, including his own. Peter says, I use my power for the good of all people. You've used your power to crush and vex all mankind. When Peter finally turns away in revulsion, Julius goes back to raise an army of his own with which to storm the gates of heaven. That's Erasmus mocking Pope Julius II, but it shows the level to which the papacy had gone by the time of the Reformation. A parallel story comes from the time of Dominic, uh, who started a monastic order, the Dominicans. He lived from the years 1172 to 1221. Uh, So the Dominicans were an order of mendicant or begging monks who had taken a vow of absolute poverty and he was seeking to have his new order of monasteries officially sanctioned by the Pope. He got an audience from the Pope, Pope Honorius III in the year 1216, who gave him a tour of the vast wealth of the Vatican's treasures. The Pope boasted, Peter can no longer say silver and gold have I none. Referring, of course, to Acts 3.6. Dominic, in his beggar's robe, said no, and neither can he say to the lame, rise and walk. (coughs) I would personally guess, though I cannot prove it, that the cumulative wealth of the Roman Catholic Church in real estate and financial instruments is among the greatest of any human entity on earth other than the governments of nations like the United States of America. Just in real estate alone, the Roman Catholic Church owns over a quarter of a million square miles, larger than all but 40 nations on earth. There is no way to put a financial value on on the masterpieces of art owned by the church. The amount of gold and silver in its coffers may be well unknowable. Beyond simple wealth, there is worldly power. For many centuries in the Middle Ages, kings trembled at the political influences of popes and were willing to kneel and kiss their rings to avoid the terrors of excommunication for themselves personally and of interdiction, which would be the loss of spiritual services by all Roman Catholic priests in their region, in their political uh, nations. They were afraid of both of those things. But Jesus himself had nowhere to lay his head at night, Matthew 8.20. And he sent out his apostles with no financial resources and commanded them to charge nothing for their ministries, saying, freely oversee, freely give, Matthew 10:8. How did the papacy, supposedly the vicar of Christ on earth, get to those levels of worldly grandeur, wealth, and power? Well, that's a very complex story. And it certainly does begin with Constantine's combination of the power of the Roman Empire with the inner workings of the Catholic Church. But a major step toward the supremacy of the papacy occurred with the consecration of a humble but exquisitely capable Benedictine monk named Gregory as Bishop of Rome on September 3, 590. By the time he died in the year 604, many had begun begun calling him Gregory the Great. At the time of his ascension, ascension to office, the Western Roman Empire was in ashes, and Rome itself was a wasteland of human suffering laid low by decades of war. The terrible pandemic called the Plague of Justinian, famines, riots, and floods leveling Rome in its vicinity. Gregory had been raised in a noble family, was highly educated, and was appointed prefect, that is, mayor of Rome, by Emperor Justin. He had shown immense skill as an administrator running the city's various complex programs and infrastructure, but at heart, he was a monk. He yearned for solitude and prayer. He gave up his worldly fortune to the poor and needy and entered the monastery. He spent whole nights praying, fasted so much that his health broke, and devoted himself to the service of the poor. In the year 579, Pope Pelagius II called Gregory to serve as one of the seven deacons of the church at Rome. And after Pelagius died, church leaders elected Gregory to replace him. But Gregory had fled to the forest, and had to be hunted down and forced to accept his position as Bishop of Rome. By the way, the word Pope just means father, and Bishop of Rome uh, was a clear office, the leader of the churches in the Roman um, uh, region, and eventually became known as the Pope or the Father. It was just a title given, but Bishop of Rome. And so Gregory became Bishop of Rome. All of Western Europe was in terrible upheaval. The Roman Empire, which for centuries had held all of society together, was almost entirely gone. Chaos reigned in the power vacuum as one barbarian tribe after another rose up to wreak havoc. As Gregory said in a sermon, everywhere we see tribulation, everywhere we see, we hear lamentation. The cities are destroyed, the castles are torn down, fields are laid waste, land is made desolate, villages are empty, few inhabitants remain in the cities. We see how some are carried into captivity. Others are mutilated. Others slain. That's a quote from Shelley's uh, history. In such a time of suffering, the people were desperate for hope, stability, and leadership. The Roman Catholic Church, under the steady, strong, consistent leadership of Gregory, provided it. Part of that leadership was political. Just as Gregory became pope, the Lombards, a powerful barbarian tribe, had united militarily and moved out to conquer all of Italy. Gregory knew little help would come from the Eastern Roman Empire, at Constantinople, and so it was upon him to do everything he could to save the city of Rome. In the pattern of his prior life as mayor of the city, he rebuilt the aqueducts and the defenses of the city and personally saw to the drilling of the garrison until their morale was restored. He then commenced direct negotiation with the Lombards and was able to secure peace. Part of that negotiation was the Pope's direct political control over the lands surrounding Rome, a region that eventually came to be known as St. Peter's Patrimony. The pattern of the Pope act as acting ruler over Rome and over much territory in Italy was therefore firmly established from that point on. In future generations, the Popes would only expand upon this pattern, becoming more and more powerful in secular matters and wealthy in worldly terms. Beyond this precedent, Gregory's greatest impact came in the theological realm. He was not a first-rate scholar. But he was an influential writer and his work shaped Roman Catholic doctrine from that point on, even beyond the Reformation. Though Gregory esteemed the writings of Augustine very highly, he reinterpreted Augustine's doctrine significantly. Augustine had only speculated about a place for those who had been baptized as Christians but who died in sin, to which they would go after they died to be purified before heaven. This is called purgatory. Augustine just kind of played with the idea. Gregory openly asserted the fact as, an, as, as a real place and began the development of the doctrine of purgatory which colored the entire presentation of salvation by the medieval Roman Catholic Church. Gregory also assented to Augustine's doctrines on, the original, on original sin and predestination and irresistible grace, but greatly modified all these convictions into a basically man-centered, work-centered, semi-Pelagian approach. While sinners are greatly affected by Adam's sin, they're not so depraved that they're not able to cooperate with God's grace in their own salvation. This cooperation is done by utilizing the sacraments of the church including baptism, the Eucharist presented the Mass and penance. Penance enabled sinners to show true contrition to God by confession to a priest who offered absolution on their behalf. Those who die with sins not yet addressed satisfactorily would go to purgatory for an unspecified length of time. But the living could, by their acts of piety on earth on their behalf, reduce the duration of time those in purgatory would have to suffer. Gregory taught that the mass is actually a form of sacrifice in which Christ is offered anew by the priest for those who for whom the mass is being offered. Gregory himself story, told the story of a monk who died in sin and who was sent to purgatory. Gregory himself had ordered that a mass be said every day for 30 days for this dead monk whose departed soul then appeared to another monk in that monastery at the end of the 30 days saying the masses had been effective in releasing him from purgatory and translating him up into heaven. That these views were mere superstition and had no basis in scripture, uh, but affected people's views of salvation deeply set a dangerous precedent for the Roman Catholic Church, which only the Reformation, would fully address. Now, after Gregory's death, his successors as pope only built upon and expanded these political, worldly, and theological themes. Popes would appeal to certain kings for military help and receive it. In return, popes would promise spiritual blessings and freedom from spiritual curses. The genuine genuine fear that all European Christian kings had of eternal hell made the constant twin threats of personal excommunication and interdiction, namely the shutting down of all spiritual services by priests in their nation, uh, made those threats very real. The intoxication of power that the popes received as a result only led to more and more worldly power. Now we're gonna stop there. We've got a lot more to say about the Middle Ages. There's a lot more to cover. But as we end this study today, it's amazing when you think about all of the sufferings and the strugglings that the people went through. You think about what the area in Italy was like uh, when Gregory came to power the kinds of devastations of society and of the economy that they're going through, gives us kind of a perspective about our present day, doesn't it? As we go through the pandemic with COVID-19 and things like that, and we compare our situation with theirs. And we're able to realize that God, by his power, strengthened our brothers and sisters in Christ back then and enabled them to face those difficulties with great courage. So as we conclude today, I want you to go into your week knowing there's nothing new under the sun. Whatever it is you're going through, there are Christians who have come before you who have dealt with similar struggles, and through the power of Christ have overcome them, and you will too. And we also know from Scripture that God went ahead of them and prepared good works for them to do in their generation, and they did them for the glory of God. And in the same way, God has gone ahead of you and prepared good works for you to do for his glory. So go do them by the same power of the Spirit that was working in them. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org.